0: Hello and welcome to Beckett Talks, the podcast series from Leeds Beckett University. In these podcasts, we will be showcasing our diverse community of students and academics, touching on the important themes that surround universities today.
1: Today for Beckett Talks podcast we're joined by Richard Simpson, PhD student in the Carnegie School of Sport. Thank you for joining us, Richard. Please could you tell us about your research?
2: Now, thank you very much for having me on the Beckett Talks podcast. So currently I'm reading for a PhD in sport and exercise psychology and specifically my research focuses on psychological well-being in sport organizations. So I'm particularly fascinated in uh, advancing research and also a um, practical uh, knowledge of the factors that uh, facilitate or undermine psychological well-being within and also Among people. Um, I'm also, um, as part of this research, uh, really fascinated by kind of welfare in sport, which is a very kind of contemporary um, and important topic at the moment with um, a lot of the uh, issues that are going on within sport to date. And so it's through researching such areas that I've been really fortunate to learn about the incredible ways in which us as human beings, particularly in sport, can flourish and can thrive. And it's through this that I hope that my PhD research can hope to make a difference to those engaged in competitive sport.
1: What is your opinion on sports psychology and elite sports settings currently? There's always an emphasis on using psychology to maximise performance to do better. Um, but does it need to be more of an emphasis on mental well-being?
2: It's a very good question and for me it's been really exciting to see the influence of sport psychology gain further attention and traction in elite sport and i think with this increasing awareness towards issues such as welfare integrity and also so- social justice in sport, that sports that sport psychology itself will continue to be a very integral tool in this mission um I think it's really important the point you met, you raise about whether it's psychology for performance or psychology for well-being. And quite often, it's a kind of debate that goes on about uh, whether it's important to focus on well-being or focus on performance. And for me, this kind of dual differences are very unhelpful, as I believe you can't have well-being without performance and you can't have performance without well-being. So I think what we are seeing now in elite sport and what we're, elite sport is getting very a lot better at is recognising the value that unlocking and maximising our well-being, which includes performance the influence that unlocking this has for someone's what we call longevity in sports so having a long and kind of successful career in sports and I think slowly but surely that we're starting to view performance and even success as something that's evolving seeing it more than just winning and and just like an outcome of a match but it's seeing kind of how how people's lives can change and I think with this evolving into what does success look like in sport we are starting to see positive change and with that I think society's perceptions of performance and well-being will be viewed as more as like a um, whole piece of the puzzle rather than separate pieces.
1: Thinking back to Euro 2020, uh, the mental well-being of some of the players who missed penalties, um, particularly after the online reaction of some fans, how can clubs ensure that um, professional athletes, um, elite athletes are p- properly supported?
2: Euro 2020 was a really harrowing and traumatic experience for many of the players, I think, in that final, especially the abuse by those those received um, who missed the penalties. But uh, despite kind of the very harrowing... Um, experiences um, and it was really tough to watch for quite a lot of us I think what I really draw courage from was the amazing psychological support that's integrated within the England national squad and while we can only really speculate to some of the ongoings and what the players would have been going through um, from I guess my knowledge um, that is in the media and you know within our within psychology networks I suppose is the amazing work that has gone on to build what we psychologists call a strong social identity so in in other words a strong togetherness within the national squad and it is evident and clear to see by the clear unity of the team and you can see that they spend a lot of time together you know the activities they're doing I'm sure in the World Cup beforehand there was a lot of kind of media around you know they were riding inflatable unicorns within the swimming pool and having a really good time and for me this togetherness builds a really strong foundation where together the players can face adversity and face challenges together rather, rather than by themselves. And it actually speaks to the importance of my research in viewing well-being more than just an individual experience. It is actually a collective experience that we all experience together. And the way I feel to answer your question that clubs can learn from the national team is taking the positives from what the national team have done, and that is actually integrating a psychologist um, as part of the setup, um, as part of the kind of system. And typically in football, psychologists are employees either just at at the development level, at an academy level, or often kind of what we call kind of refer referral options, so a bit more decentralized, um, and are usually referral options for people if you know, they're struggling um, with their mental health, for example, or just their general well-being, they're used as referral options. But what is really clear to see from the success of the national team is that psychology can really be used as a, a positive and a bonus um, to really create like these environments where where the players can flourish together, um, and having that psychologist integrated in a centralised system is really crucial to, you know, maintaining and facilitating strong relationships between the coaches and the athletes. And as I mentioned, building those environments that are there in the first place, where people um, can flourish through, throughout the national team, rather than psychology being viewed as a referral or emergency, quick fix or quick fix option.
0: The Carnegie School of Sport at Leeds Beckett University is one of the largest providers of sport in UK higher education. Recently investing £45 million in a new home for sport, the new building provides world-class sporting facilities and also acts as a hub for elite athletes, sports and industry partners. With courses in sport, exercise and health sciences, physical education, sports management and sports coaching, the school takes an interdisciplinary approach to teaching and research enabling the students to graduate with the skills needed to succeed in an evolving sport and physical activity industry. So, if any of these subjects interest you, go to leedsbecketacuk forward slash CSOS for more information.
1: Do you think there's been a, an increase in wellbeing cases in athletes during a pandemic with all elite sport paused?
2: The pandemic has been really challenging for everyone and all involved in sport and the ripple effects and, uh, you know, the consequences of this pandemic have been really clear to see. So we have, you know, the prolonged effects of isolation, this really kind of um, sense of uncertainty in operating in unknown territory. And it is often underestimated in, you know, pre-COVID times, but elite athletes are already performing within some of the most stressful and demanding of environments with the whole public scrutiny and the whole world watching and having an opinion some of the stories I've heard especially during and leading up to the Tokyo Olympics for example, while they have been very difficult to hear with cases coming out about mental health, it's also been for me inspiring an equal measure. So for example we've had the American gymnast Simona Biles um, who has had to make some quite difficult decisions about her own mental health and well-being but i also feel that that has been like an inspiration to many other athletes and has um you know it's encouraged other athletes to be very brave in some ways and say you know what i'm struggling And the reason that is brave because it goes against this narrative that has often been associated with elite sport and elite athletes that they're warriors on the battlefield or, you know, the people who never give in and never quit and so on. But however, the consequences and costs of this kind of narrative of this kind of messaging is beginning to be very clear to see if you pile on top the pressure of elite sport um, and on top of that, the the demands of the pandemic Um, and for for me what the pandemic has unearthed in my eyes is that vulnerability in all its shapes and forms um, and especially uh, vulnerability and being comfortable and accepting vulnerability is a really true strength and it shouldn't hopefully we'll come to a point where it doesn't need to you know take some bravery to be vulnerable but is widely accepted.
1: You're looking at um as part of your research, psychological, well being in sports organisations amongst athletes, coaches, sports staff and decision makers, also collectively experienced amongst people. What kind what are your key findings to date?
2: We've had some recently published research in which we call a systematic review. And so a systematic review is kind of a piece of literature which brings together and reviews uh, various pieces of research within one area. And for us, we have found that research into well-being within sport organisations is actually really still in its infancy infancy. Um, This is really due to a lack of consensus and clarity and consistency in how we actually understand the complex topic of well-being. So we are looking with our research to really further our understanding of what well-being is to help people kind of be able to work towards a common understanding of well-being. So through working with athletes, coaches and psychology practitioners, some of my recent research has started to unpack the important factors that um, facilitates and undermines individual well-being so for example these are some common examples we found is the individual ways in which people um, cope and the coping strategies that you use the ways in which they kind of handle their kind of dual work-life balance and also the the types of support that they draw from. So as well as kind of the individual well-being, we've also outlined the importance of well-being experienced among people and the factors that also facilitate and undermine well-being within and among key relationships. So we've often found that obviously relationship quality and and the key kind of qualities such as honesty and empathy are really important and that having kind of almost – a shared personality characteristics um, and unlocking kind of shared values is really important and also, and this is a bit of a buzzword at the moment, but having a sense of psychological safety and what we mean by psychological safety is again having this um, almost as the word suggests, the comfort in um, being able to kind of be honest and speak with one another in one environment and we're finding that um, these kind of um, important factors really are are important within understanding well-being among people, and in addition to this, our research is also as well as looking at individual well-being within uh, people and uh, what we call interpersonal well-being, so well-being among people. We've also looked at key processes where well-being is uh, transferred from one person to another. So we've looked at processes such as um, what we call emotional contagion, so the spreading of emotions from one person to another. Other. We've looked how people cope together. So, this is also called interpersonal uh, coping. And um, we've also looked in ways in which people can evaluate um, the stress around them together. And this term is called social appraising. So, Going forward, our research looks to um, explore this further. And we're looking to unpack wellbeing at um, higher levels of a sport organisation. So looking at the leadership levels of an an institution and seeing its kind of ripple effects and its influences on wellbeing, um, with a view to hopefully providing some recommendations for wellbeing and how to understand how wellbeing is experienced among a sport organisation.
1: Do you have any advice for students and staff for at Leesbeck University who um, are involved in sport which could um, support their well-being?
2: Wellbeing is a very, uh, indiv- uh, almost very personal and personalised kind of topic to us all. And so while this is a lot of very great sources for advice out there, um, especially from the wellbeing team at Leeds Beckett that I would recommend uh, signposting people towards, I guess the key tips that I've commonly come out of my research is firstly, I would recommend that as we know wellbeing is very personalised, that staff and students get to know themselves what serves and what is useful for their own well-being so with that it's important to take notice and really kind of think about Uh, and and be mindful in activities that you know are you know what I'm getting the most out of this activity and this is really supporting my well-being I'm really noticing that and kind of um, you know almost taking a a mental note of that that this is you're enjoying this and you're feeling a sense of meaning from for example whether it's playing a sport within a team whether it's going for a coffee with a colleague or a a friend before a lecture um, whether it's you know you're doing a club or society together and you're progressing with a skill or you're working towards a goal, it's really important to notice that, to to, um, find ways also of noting that down and processing it. So whether it's writing it down, you know, in a little reflective diary or finding a way of processing that. So because through processing that, we are more likely to recognize and know what's good for supporting our own well-being, what does not. Another factor as well, and it, it, it it's nothing new, but in terms of kind of connection and connection with others is really important. So whether it's through your family, the friendships and mentors you look you look up to, or whether it's just people you meet at university who just you met them for the first time, they have like-minded interests. Um, these connections we make with people are not to be underestimated and are really important to our own well-being. And and finally, I would also say that it's important that as well as our, whether in our own work lives or, you know, whether it's kind of the degree we study or the kind of one main goal or sole pursuit we have, it's also really important to have some accompanying pursuits and to some other interests as well. So whether it's learning a new skill, reading a book, giving ourselves opportunity to grow and learn through, kind of different outputs and channels is important to our own development and it also allows us to replenish our energy for our other main pursuits also. Uh, just one example quickly um, that I can think of is Marcus Rashford who's obviously done a lot within the pandemic but one uh, example is he's recently created a book club and one thing he's come out and said is that he's actually someone who likes his reading. Not only has he been the role model for other people to get into reading but he also shows he has more to him so he's not just kind of of obsessed and within football, he's actually doing other things to support his own well being and development. Also,
1: it's obviously very dark at this time of year, the less hours of sun, and a lot of people are affected by this. Um, does your research have any um, findings on the seasonal approach? Any general tips for people at this time of year? That's a
2: really important question. And I think within the changing seasons, we usually find that our own schedules and our own priorities change. Um, for example, we, we want to get home earlier to be out of the cold, wet and dark. Um, and I think with, with such considerations, it's really important that seasonally our planning and our routines become really important. So for example, I know uh, as an easy example, many people who play summer sports um, such as cricket, and then many people who also play winter sports, so whether it's quite often indoor sports. So for me, I used to play a lot of badminton through the winter months, which would be my indoor sport, um, and then I'd play cricket in the summer. So it's really important to almost have those yearly routines, and you know that something there's an activity that you will be doing that will support your well-being and you will get something out of. So it's important to have planned specific um, activities. On um, the other side as well um, is also important to be flexible on the activities you do for your health and well-being and to have backups. So for example, if the weather or the lack of light is impeding kind of your participation within the activity, if you're held up at work or maybe someone cancels on you, um, then it's important that you're replacing that source of well-being with something else that can equally serve your well-being so in almost in a way you're being flexible adaptable and you're in you're planning ahead so you can employ kind of problem and solution focus strategies in equal measure to help support and replenish your well-being all year round
1: conversely is there anything that people should be avoiding doing to make sure that they're keeping um, their well-being as high as it can be at this time of year
2: Generally, um, I think there's no real rule of thumb, but I think as well, as we've discussed, well-being is very personalised and the emphasis also is, again, on noticing what not just what serves our well-being, but also what doesn't serve our well-being. So also to notice things that, you know, we feel are not doing us any great to remove ourselves from situations which are kind of really having a negative effect on our well-being. That said, I do think that throughout the pandemic has uh, clearly outlined the perils of um, prolonged isolation, whilst it has been designed naturally to protect others. So I do think that lack of connection with others, you know, the lack of out- access to the outdoors, to opportunities to exercise, and also, you know, overworking or burning out can be very harmful to our well-being, and that's definitely been exposed by the pandemic. and one other piece of advice which has been nothing new, really, is the importance of sharing and disclosing your well-being to others. And this is one of the reasons why in my research, well-being among people is very, very important, really emphasising what we call the we within well-being rather than the I. And so sharing your well-being with others and being heard, understood, listened to and supported is extremely powerful. And it's not to be dismissed or undervalued so having such opportunities or even providing that safe space and opportunities to other people to be open to be honest and to be comfortable in being vulnerable is really important um and i think when such opportunities are restricted or non-existent this can be a real problem and it's something that's uh, all of us um at whatever positions we are should consider really carefully when looking to support well-being
1: you're obviously very passionate about your research where did your interest come for this particular field of study
2: I've been very privileged to have dipped my toe in various aspects of different sports. Um, So from attempting, and I say attempting to play sport, um, to coaching people far better than me, to dipping my toe into refereeing matches, being an official, to providing a service for sport and exercise institutions, so through working in sport and exercise centres, and now during my recent stage of my career to researching within sport. So during my life, I've seen the the good sport can bring to enriching someone's quality of life and their well-being but sadly i've also seen the dark side to sport which which isn't always what people think, in my opinion, because you have your outbursts of bad behaviours, or your, you know, someone showing kind of antisocial behaviour on a pitch, or your, you know, general behaviours that portrays someone as the pantomime villain. And for me, whilst obviously this is not ideal, this is not the real darkness that I see in sport. The real darkness I have witnessed is when people, whether it's in influential or positions or where they can make a difference, they will see injustice. They will see discrimination and they will see issues of welfare or that even people are struggling and they will choose not to act or do anything. they will be a bystander or they just refuse to admit that something's happening. Yet in equal measure in their marketing or branding, they will champion themselves as mental health advocates for the cause. So... There are many layers to this and there's many complexities, but for me, through advancing understanding of well-being, I see this really as the first step towards a career where I want society to move beyond lip service and awareness, not just saying that mental health and well-being is really important, but let's move towards well-being and mental health as a strategic imperative and matter of importance and towards valuing well-being and action.
1: Thank you very much for joining us, Richard.
2: Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.
0: The Beckett Talk podcasts are released every Tuesday. So don't forget to check our social media channels on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook to find out more details on our next episode. See you next week.